1: We have an all-star panel of political journalists to uh, talk with on Political Rewind uh, today. Before we get to them, uh, let me say there's nothing like starting off my show by making a dumb mistake. If you were listening to the headlines, you heard me make a comment about Herschel Walker wanting you to know that Raphael Warnock doesn't have a gun. That was just a brain freeze moment. The story we're going to talk about is Herschel Walker attacking Raphael Warnock because he doesn't own the dog that became so famous in the uh, commercials in (laughs) Raphael Warnock's initial run. For the US Senate. My apologies to all of you out there, but we are going to get to that uh, story a little later in the show. Let me introduce the panel and then we'll get started. And of course, the Rayshard Brooks story is really dominant uh, in the news today. So we'll begin our conversation with that before moving on to campaign news. It's Wednesday, which means my partner on the show from the AJC is Greg Bluestein, political reporter. Uh, He also reports for all the NBC platforms now as an analyst. He's got a, a really terrific podcast, Politically Georgia, that he does with his colleagues at uh, the AJC. So, uh, Greg, uh, you've got a lot of exposure these days, and it's very well deserved.
2: Well, oh, thank you, Bill. I, I'm glad you cleared that up um, about the gun because I was frantically googling. <laughs> so what <did> I said, "What a mess!" I
1: I apologize for the misdirection. Uh, Chuck Williams, the legendary reporter from Columbus, Georgia, longtime print. Journalist in Columbus now at WRBL-TV, uh, where he covers politics and more, is uh, back with us. How are you, Chuck?
3: I'm doing well, Bill. The state Columbus will be in the state spotlight later this week. The Democratic State Convention is going to be held at the Ironworks Trade Center down here, so we're looking forward to all the top Democratic candidates coming to us and not having to chase them this weekend.
1: Oh my goodness. It's going to be like Christmas for you down there, uh, Chuck. Uh, we'll Close be looking to forward to hearing <laughs> Great. Uh, Raul Bali uh, is back with us, too. He's a politics reporter at WABE Radio in Atlanta. How are you, Raul?
4: It, it really feels, for the second week in the row, it feels like we're jamming a week worth of news in like two or three days. It's it, the pace. Yeah man, is this the pace we're going to be keeping or even faster to the the elections? It's going to be exhausting.
1: Yeah, that's true. I saved for last somebody who I am so happy to welcome back to the show because she hasn't been on in far too long. Lori Geary, who is now the host of Fox 5's uh, uh, Georgia Gang, which you can watch on Sunday mornings, at I think 8.30 is the start time for the show these days. Uh, Of course, she's a former longtime political reporter for uh, WSB-TV, and she has her own media company uh, as well. Lori Geary, as I said when we first uh, heard your voice earlier this morning, what a pleasure to have you back with us. Thanks for being here.
0: Thanks, Bill. It's great to be back. And I remember when I took over the show from Dick Williams, he used to tell me, you know, the really hard shows to produce are the ones that, you know, where it's a really slow news week. And I'm still waiting for that slow news week. <laughs> <laughs> Amen.
1: Boy, I get that. All right, let's, uh, Greg scene let's start with this news out of the Rayshard Brooks case. Um, it's been two years since Rayshard Brooks was shot dead uh, in a confrontation with two Atlanta police officers and, um, a, uh, it, there was lots of uh, machinations over who was going to prosecute this case. Fonnie Willis turned it down in the Fulton County DA's office. Uh, Chris Carr uh, wanted to find someone who would take on the case. And it ended up in the lap of Pete Scandalakis, the executive director of the Prosecuting Attorneys Council of Georgia. Um, and he brought in Danny Porter, the former Gwinnett County District Attorney, They have been looking at this case, looking at what happened on that fateful day and uh, came to the conclusion and announced yesterday that there would be no charges uh, filed against the two police officers, Garrett Rolfe and Devin Devin Brosnan, because after really examining this carefully, uh, they found that this was a justified shooting. It's a controversial decision. Um, but it's it's um, one that we should discuss this morning, right?
2: Yeah, they hired experts. They went frame by frame through the footage and found that there was, as you said, um, that there was no evidence that the officers um, you know, uh, didn't follow their their orders, that didn't follow their protocol um, it, involving this deadly shooting. But in the context of when this happened, this was uh, this happened as demonstrations around police violence, royal royal. Atlanta and in the nation following George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis. It happened just weeks earlier. So an intensified protest that became a political issue. Um, Stacey Abrams and other Democratic candidates uh, and leading Democratic figures uh, invoked uh, Rayshard Brooks's killing
1: um,
2: to to push criminal justice reforms and other issues. And now we've got this this chapter being closed by uh, by investigators.
1: Um, it was also political in the sense of Paul Howard, the d- former Fulton County D.A., was in the middle of a campaign for re-election, and he very quickly announced he was going to charge these officers, um, and many thought that that was a political uh, decision uh, uh, to help his campaign, which, of course, he eventually lost to Fonny, uh Willis. Um, Raul, you were at the news conference yesterday where Danny Porter and um, Pete Scandalakis made their announcement. Give us a little uh, insight.
4: You know, as, as Greg mentioned, you know, what was happening in the time, both in Georgia and our country when this happened, and both and Scandalakis was sensitive to that. He talked about that at the very beginning of the press conference. He also talked about the general issues with the black community and law enforcement. He was very – and I think that's the re- – the press conference was more than an hour of Scandalakis and Porter going through video, going through explanations, going through legal explanations. Again, being sensitive and very clearly sensitive because they knew there was going to be a, re- a reaction to this decision. The big takeaways that, that the two gentlemen wanted was, number one, it's easy to question in 2020 and in hindsight, well, what if, what if, what if, instead of trying to be in the moment what that officer, those officers were going through. And he also tried to make clear that this was not a racial issue. Now, the attorneys, L, L, um uh, Chris Stewart and Justin Miller, of course, for the Rayshard Brooks family, had a very different opinion, and it comes down to this. They believe that this should have been presented to a grand jury and possibly mm-hmm. a jury in the end when, when it was borderline. So that was the thing. If it's borderline, it should have been taken to a grand jury and to a jury. And I, one other interesting thing, an interesting conversation I had yesterday with, with uh, Atlanta City Councilman Antonio Lewis. Uh, who represents the area where that Wendy's used to be over on university. Uh, he stated some – he obviously had frustrations towards um, uh, Special Prosecutor Pete Scandalakis, but he also had some frustrations toward Bonnie Lewis and Willis in that she removed herself from the case. And so that's the other thing I'm going to be watching for is, is first of all, the civil suit that mentioned that we're likely looking at a civil suit coming And, um, you know, is there going to be any other, not backlash, but I'm trying to think of the right word, pushback on Fonnie Lewis for taking herself off this case?
1: Fonnie Willis. Uh, Lori and then Chuck, let me play a soundbite from uh, the Rayshard Brook family's attorney, Chris Stewart, which I think tells us a lot about how complicated this incident was and the investigation of the aftermath. Remember that this started with uh, 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 Rayshard Brooks being found sitting, apparently half asleep, at a drive through window at the Wendy's in his car, uh, it, it, I think it was Garrett Rolfe who was the first on the scene who talked to him for some 40 minutes to try to get him to move his car, and then the whole thing escalated when uh, when uh, Rayshard Brooks uh, grabbed a taser, had a scuffle, and then began to run away. He shot the taser back at the men, and that's when Garrett uh, Rolf uh, shot him and killed him. But let's listen to how Chris Stewart Described this just yesterday, because it does reveal the complexities of this case.
4: There was a very bad confrontation. No person in this country should fight with police officers. No one. Ever. Because during that fight, they were justified in using deadly force. 100 percent. While he was on top of them, they didn't know if he was reaching for a gun or whatever. They could have used deadly force, and I would have backed any officer that did it. But they did not. They did not. They chose not to when they were justified. But they decided to use lethal force as a man was running away 19 feet away.
1: Laurie?
0: I think you know that soundbite proves just the complexities, as you said, and how we view things through different lenses. I thought the prosecutors did a great job of laying out, I mean, as Raul mentioned, minute by minute, second by second of the video of why they didn't feel that this was any type of borderline case and why, you know, it shouldn't go to a grand jury. And I also think addressing the race issue just up front, I mean, you had two white prosecutors, I think, was effective. Um, But we knew that, you know, one side was going to be happy and the other side was not. And the fact that the family of Rayshard Brooks is choosing to go ahead with a civil case. I think at, at some point, I hope they find, they find justice in this. It's just really a tragedy all the way around. It's taken two years to get to this point. And I, I just think, you know, what you see on the video, it, it really is amounts to what you, what your background is, right. And where you come from and what you see.
3: Chuck, you know, is exactly right because people's life experiences are going to definitely determine how they see that video, and they have determined how they see that video. I thought it was interesting they went frame by frame. And um, one of the interesting things that I looked at, and so it takes a little bit out of Atlanta and, and stuff, but last, last summer, the ability to assign these special prosecutors left the attorney general's office and went to the prosecuting attorneys council of Georgia to Scandalakis and his group, and that's a particular interest down here in Columbus because the governor just appointed our top criminal defense attorney as our district attorney. We have a ton of conflict cases in the Muscogee County court system right now, and. When you look at the way Scandal Act has handled this, and I know every case does not rise to this magnitude, but we got some pretty big cases he's going to have to deal with. The the deliberate nature in which the prosecuting attorney's counsel handled its role in this is kind of telling as to what we're going to see here in Muscogee County as we work through this massive backlog. And I
4: think an important reminder of what Chuck is talking about, about how that power is now in the hands of Pete Scandalakis of the prosecutor attorney counsel with the disqualification of Fonnie Willis from Burt Jones's case um, dealing with election interference in 2020. Remember that Pete will likely be appointing, if he makes the decision to, appointing a prosecutor for Burt Jones as well. Again, it's important that this law recently changed and that power had been moved from the Attorney General to this office.
1: Yeah, and by the way, just as a side note, it, it appears it could be quite some time before anybody yeah. is appointed to replace Fonnie Willis in terms of the Burt Jones uh, being one of the fake electors and whether or not he is criminally liable for his activity in that. Uh, Greg, before we uh, leave this subject, um, we should also remind people that when this thing broke, you you really framed it well. This happened during a summer of enormous discontent, and more than discontent, rage, uh, by uh, uh, African Americans around the country, uh, whites who were uh, distressed by the way police were killing uh, uh, black people, uh, in in many cases, in an unjustified incidence. And in the middle of all this, Mayor Bottoms at the time also fired these two officers summarily uh, before any significant investigation was able to unfold. Um, and now uh, it appears they've been, I think, on, on administrative duty, though. They were, they, their jobs were given back to them. So this becomes a very complicated story. And we're going to be talking about it more on tomorrow's show because we're going to watch to see how things play out with reaction today. But before we leave it today... Um, where do you see this going as a political issue? You mentioned Stacey Abrams made it a political issue at the time or made political statements about it at the time. How how does this play into uh, the campaigns of of this year, or does it? That's a good question.
2: Um, Stacey Abrams at the time, and I'm quoting her, she said, there is a legitimacy to this anger, there is a legitimacy to this outrage, a man was murdered because he was asleep in the drive-thru. She used the word murdered. Uh, we haven't heard Republicans you know, kind of seize on that, that phrasing yet, but we might. Uh, what Stacey Abrams said um, last night about this was her prayers are with the family and loved ones of Richard Brooks. Accountability is an essential component of community trust and public safety, a component that is in question today. And so she's tying this case to her push uh, for more criminal justice reforms, for de-escalation techniques being taught. Uh, you know, in, a, in an enhanced manner uh, to police officers and public safety officials. And, of course, uh, her her call to raise the salary of certain law enforcement officials.
1: All right, we're going to keep our eye on this. As I said, we're going to watch to see reaction today and talk about it more uh, with our panel on tomorrow's show. But let's move on to some uh, important political uh, news as well today. Lori Geary, um, Brian Kemp is in the midst of fighting— against the subpoena to testify before Fonnie Willis's special grand jury right now. He is a witness, not a target, uh, and he's a witness because he got phone calls from, we know he got a phone call from Donald Trump. We're not quite sure, I don't think, who else might have called him on behalf of Trump asking him to uh, uh, decertify the Georgia election. It appeared early on that Kemp had made a peaceful resolution of this to give video testimony, get it over with. Instead, it's turned into a full-blown fight, gone very public, and Kemp is now calling this a political process. Um, he doesn't want to testify, and we expect Judge Robert McBurney tomorrow to rule on whether that subpoena should be quashed. Why did Kemp decide? I mean, I speculation, I suppose, but. It's odd that this becomes a political fight when it could have been uh, dealt with quietly uh, the first time around.
0: Well, we talked about this on the Georgia gang, and I thought it was an interesting perspective from the two Republicans on my panel, Janelle King and Phil Kent. I mean, this fires up the base. They call this a political witch hunt. And so for Kent to come out publicly and say, look at, you know, come on, look at this. Look what's going on here. It becomes more of a what what Kemp is trying to paint as a political circus, right? I mean, this is an entire case about politics, and you can't take the politics out when everybody involved is a politician. So I think it it was strategic on Kemp's part because, you know, you had this going on at the same time as the Mar-a-Lago raid um, with Republicans coming out saying, you know, look at this. He's been out... Trump has been out of office for how long? And and Democrats are still going after him.
3: Chuck? You know... Everything is taken through a political, is looked at through a political lens right now. And, you know, that was the first thought I had when I saw that the governor was fighting the subpoena. It's like, okay, how does this play in? And I think Lori's right when she says the timing of the Mar-a-Lago search warrants. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on. And Georgia is a very different place. There aren't many Pro Trump candidates left standing here. I mean, we have been the outlier to some of the other places. You know, we're certainly not Wyoming. Um, and when you look at the fact that an allegiance to former President Trump doesn't necessarily buy you a victory in Georgia, it can sometimes buy you a 50 point loss, as uh, David Perdue can certainly attest.
1: Um, Greg, uh, Tamar Hallerman on the show yesterday, uh, and nobody's been following this case quite as closely as she has. She's really got an inside track on things that are happening there. She suggested that part of this uh, decision to fight the subpoena after seeming to co- want to cooperate may have been a result of Cody Hall's testimony. We all know Cody, who has been the governor's spokesman for quite some time and uh, now is the campaign spokesman. And Tamar suggests that his treatment in front of the grand jury may have given uh, the governor and his people some pause as to whether they want to uh, go forward. What can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, we also reported this last week. Part of the, um, part of I guess, the intrigue in, in these legal motions is that we have, for the first time, this inside glimpse of this email back and forth because there's the legal motion and there's the appendixes, which appendices, which include... You know, in some cases, dozens of emails that give us an inside look at the negotiations going back and forth. And in one of the filings last week, it mentioned a Mr. Hall. And actually, in the file yesterday, it went ahead and said his name, Cody Hall. So uh, it's out there. <laughs> I texted Cody. Um, <clears throat> there's no hiding now. But Cody was among the governor's aides who was uh, subpoenaed to testify or who, who agreed to testify um, a few weeks ago before the, the uh, special grand jury. And there was concern from Governor's Kemp's camp that he was asked all sorts of questions um, that they felt had had little to do with the the actual investigation, questions about policy and decision-making process and politics within the governor's office. And you can see that in the emails back and forth. You can see that concern. Um, And there was also a a, a mention in the emails that came out uh, in, in the latest court filing that even The subpoena to Cody Hall was on like the front doorstep of his house rather than being delivered in a secretive manner. So they're worried that, you know, if they they said essentially if that could be put out in the public and they open, um, they're worried that, that Governor Kemp's testimony could be leaked to the public right before a November election. And look, they're worried about Donald Trump. They're, they have this tentative truce with Donald Trump. I had a story this morning about how Governor Kemp is no never Trumper, even though he you know, he was the top target of the former president. Uh, they have this detente going on, and they don't want to do anything that could, um, uh, that could jeopardize that. Because right now, AJC polls and others show a vast majority of Republicans are backing the governor despite his falling out with, with the former president.
1: Um, Raul, this has turned into a really ugly battle of words between uh, the prosecutors and uh, Kemp's lawyers. Um, But Fonnie Willis has won most of these battles. You pointed out she lost the Burt Jones battle. Uh, He no longer uh, can be uh, uh, subpoenaed by her. He's no longer part of her case. It's a separate case. But she's winning all of these things left and right, with the exception now waiting to hear about Kemp and Lindsey Graham. So uh, what do you think the next steps are in this?
4: I think, you know, the, uh, the hearing that I look back to was the hearing about Burt Jones and, and the insight we got from Judge Robert McBurney. He does not want his fingers and this grand jury affecting the election. He's already pretty much all but made clear if a final report is ready before Election Day, it's going to be sealed. I think what, again, you know, I'm guessing here, but I wouldn't be surprised at, you know, whatever ruling comes out of tomorrow. Possibly Governor Kemp doesn't testify until after the election, um, because it's just clear that Robert McBurton, the the judge who's overseeing the grand jury, is trying to keep trying to stick with the law. And same with, with the federal judges who've been dealing with Lindsey Graham and other issues as well.
1: All right, let's do this. Uh, Let's get to our first break on the show today. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, some issues that have come up in the governor's race, a little bit about Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. And then we want to talk a bit about Sandra Deal, the uh, late, really uh, marvelous uh, first lady uh, uh, wife of uh, former Governor Nathan Deal. We'll do that and more after these messages. By the way, today is Political Rewind Newsletter Day. If you want to get our newsletter in your inbox every Wednesday afternoon, all you have to do is go to gpb.org newsletters and read uh, the items that we've selected as what we think are the big stories of the week. Plus, uh, today I'd love for you to look at the blog that I wrote for it, uh, which talks about the uh, strange uh, relationship that I find uh, between uh, uh, Anthony Fauci, and the great singer Judy Collins. What's the connection? Subscribe to the newsletter, and I'll explain it all to you. Lori Geary is with us, Chuck Williams, Raul Bali, and Greg Bluestein. Um, Chuck Williams, let me start with you on this. Uh, there are two stories that have been big in the news that I think will weigh, uh, play a role, of course, in the governor's campaign uh, in the weeks ahead. One of them, of course, uh, is that a federal judge down uh, in the uh, southwest corner of the state or, or I guess, no, I'm sorry, I think down by the coast in Brunswick, uh, ruled that Governor Kemp's waiver, which um, would expand Medicaid by some 50,000 people, but it would be coupled to a work requirement, which the Trump administration had approved, but then the Biden administration put on what appeared to be a permanent hold. The judge said that was legal and could go forward. And there's no question that when Stacey Abrams talks about and has since 2018, a full expansion of Medicaid is necessary in this state, that this is going to play a role in the campaigns moving forward, Chuck.
3: I think it's going to be a debate question. I think it's going to be interesting to watch the two of them, to watch Abrams and Kemp on a stage dealing with that question put Pretty much like you just laid it out, Bill. You know, work requirements, uh, full Medicaid expansion that that, uh, that Abrams Warnock, I saw all the top Democrats have been pushing hard for, and I think there's even some appetite on, on the other line to, the other side to discuss that right now, because Georgia's what, 12, one of twelve states that doesn't have it, and. You could make the argument it's costing Georgia, ta- Georgia taxpayers money. So I, wanna, I want to be able to hear them answer that question face-to-face. That's what I want to see. Greg?
2: Yeah, there's an appetite for Republicans to talk about this since 2012, right? Republican supporters of, of Vatican Extension have never really gone away. Um, the question is, is there a, you know, a new momentum? And I'm not sensing any. Um, legit. I mean, I've talked to uh, a, a number of, of senior Republican lawmakers, especially particularly in the state Senate, which is seen as the sort of the final barrier. And when you have Burt Jones, who would be if Republican's whim, the lieutenant governor and president of the state Senate opposing Medicaid expansion, you already have Governor Kemp exposing, uh, opposing full scale Medicaid expansion. You have a number of rank and file Republican lawmakers who have run their campaigns on it. It doesn't look like it's going to go anywhere, uh, the, and, and really, this court ruling um, cements that or reinforces that in a sense because it shows that there is a pathway forward for what Governor Kemp has long said was a Georgia-based solution, which is these these work requirements, these academic requirements that go along with a more limited expansion of Medicaid that that he unveiled shortly after he won um, his. Uh, his first term in office, the bigger the, the interesting question for me is what would Stacey Abrams do if she was uh, she was governor? If, if, if Kemp wins the second term, uh, it's very unlikely that Medicaid is fully expanded. But if, if Abrams does, I think all bets are off because she could kind of go out there and say, hey, I'll, I'll sign a budget. I'll sign any laws that I have to sign, but everything else <laughs> I'll hold. I'll hold up until I get a Medicaid expansion bill passed. And, and, and when she plays hardball like that,
4: anything could happen. Raul. So here is where I see the path for Republicans to possibly head toward Medicaid expansion. Coming from rural county commissioners, rural areas where there are hospitals that could use Medicaid expansion. You know, I have heard, you know, county level commissioners, Republicans say, I can't say it publicly. It's not something out loud, but down the road, is that a possible path? That's where I think it eventually comes from. Greg is right. The challenge still is getting it through the state Senate because you'd only need a handful, depending on what the, the House balance is, you only need a, a handful of Republicans to join Democrats um, You know, after, after this coming election. But the path in the Senate looks really, really difficult. But again, I think that path, if it comes anywhere, it, it starts on um, the local rural Georgia level where Republican voters are if they still see issues with their local hospitals.
1: Laura, you covered the state capitol for a long time, covered legislative sessions, question of expanding Medicaid is often hovered in the air and we did hear some reporting in the last week or so that maybe some, a lot of Republicans are moving in that direction. But I think you know, uh, as well as anyone, just how difficult that challenge is and how resistant rep- Republican lawmakers really are to the idea.
0: Yes, and I remember you know, covering the Capitol in 2014, um, 2015, there were always rumblings that maybe this is the year and there was maybe some momentum that Republicans could expand Medicaid somehow, some way but it never came to fruition. And I think there were a lot of questions why. I mean, we saw all of these rural hospitals closing. We saw other Republican states expanding Medicaid and not going broke because that was the argument that we that we cannot afford to expand Medicaid because Georgia would have to pick up too much of the bill. And it's a 90-10 split, right? split, 90% of the federal government. So I think there are a lot of whispers in the back halls of Republicans really saying this is an issue that we should tackle. Governor Kemp is Attempting to in the way that he feels is fiscally responsible, but I, I think you know if he wanted to take the wind out of Stacey Abrams' Sales, he would have done something you know more major in terms of Medicaid expansion because this is her marquee issue.
1: Um, Raúl, let's move on to another uh, a news story that may play into the gubernatorial race, into other races uh, on the state ballot as well, and that was this uh, these shootings in right in the heart of Midtown. Uh, Atlanta. Uh, two days ago, uh, a woman uh, shot and killed two people, injured, wounded a third. Uh, she was captured out at the Atlanta airport. At the Atlanta airport, um, you know this is going to be another. And we did see the Abrams campaign, Lauren Grow Argo, uh, uh, immediately tweet about it. Apparently, just to put this in context, apparently, Governor Kemp, after the shooting sent out a tweet congratulating the state for winning the college football championship. Lauren Grow Wargo responded by saying Kemp obviously is more interested in football championships than he is in people who are getting killed in Midtown. If I look at the timestamp on the tweets, it was a couple minutes after that and after Wargo had uh, tweeted that Kemp did send out a tweet saying our whole family expresses its condolences uh, for the loss of life in Midtown. So clearly already a campaign issue, Raul.
4: I think in the end, you know, both of the, all the candidates are going to go to their sides on whatever incident it is. You know, Governor Kemp is going to keep talking about, you know, constitutional carry getting passed. And then you, you know, you'll have uh, um, Stacey Abrams focusing on you know, again, also talking about constitutional carry. You know, I went to uh, an event that uh, the, the founder of Moms Demand Action was at. And, and Shannon Watts absolutely believes that there are independent voters and even Republican voters that they can bring over on this issue. That's, that's where they think that they can grab a few votes Governor Campbell, you know, when I was on the trail in North Georgia, still one of the some of the biggest applause lines he gets is around uh, the Second Amendment and issues around guns. So I think for both sides, they feel like that there is both base voters they can get 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 at and even possibly some voters in the middle.
1: Uh,
2: Greg. Yeah, Stacey Abrams, top aide shortly after that shooting uh, kind of mocked Governor Kemp for a, a tweet about the College Football National Championship saying that, that Kemp is so used to gun violence in our state and he can just pretend nothing happened today and post about football. So you can expect more of this anytime. And unfortunately, you know, unfortunately there will be more shootings because that is that is where we are in society today. And you can expect anytime there is a shooting uh, for Stacey Abrams to do what she, she did, which was say that she will roll back these expansive gun laws and, and, and enact uh, more gun restrictions. And again, We've talked about this, but this is a position that is now norm. But in 2014, 10 years, to 8, 12 years ago, it was not the norm for Democratic candidates who, who ran as NRA Democrats. And now uh, pretty much the, the entire elected Democratic apparatus in Georgia is favoring gun restrictions.
1: So, Laurie, I really want to ask you about this. Raul says that he thinks Republicans may believe that independence could be persuaded by uh, having the ability to carry guns to protect themselves. A lot of those independents that, that uh, both Democrats and Republicans want to win over are, of course, women voters. Uh, what's your sense about how guns and access to guns plays among uh, women voters in Georgia?
0: I think, Bill, that's a really good point. What I find is that it's such a cyclical issue. When there is a mass shooting, especially involving children, um, the moms, especially suburban moms, they will vote on this issue alone because it is so emotional and it pulls at the heartstrings. But I feel like we, become, and we see this play out at news conferences after every one of these mass shootings. We just become hardened to it after a couple of weeks and the news cycle changes. But I do think there are two issues that fire up these suburban moms and the suburban women who I think are very crucial to this governor's race, and that is Roe v. Wade, and I think it's the gun issue.
1: Well, I want, all right, so I'm going to throw one at you uh, since you mentioned Roe v. Wade and see what your thoughts are on this. And everybody else on the panel is more than welcome to weigh in. So New York State had its primary yesterday. There was an open seat in District 19 in the U.S. House. The candidates were a Democrat, Pat Ryan, and a Republican, Mark Molinaro. Pat Ryan, the Democrat, ran his entire campaign on choice Every sign that he had uh, talked about a woman's right to choose. And he won the race by about four points. Taken in, in uh, uh, light of what happened in Kansas, Lori, that 19th district race in, in New York must give both Republicans and Democrats some uh, thoughts that they're dealing with about how big an issue abortion could be in November.
0: And I think that's why we see Stacey Abrams and her campaign keeping it, you know, front and center. This is their issue, and they know that they can win women on this issue. They need women, right, women voters. So I think, I think it would be really smart for her to keep – for Stacey Abrams to keep harping on this issue.
3: Chuck? You know, that's one of the things I'm looking toward, look, toward seeing this weekend when the Democrats are doing their state convention in Columbus – uh, all the constitutional officers, plus many of the folks running for the for Congress and Senator Warnock, will be here. Uh, they're going to be preaching to the choir. There's no question about that in that room at the Trade Center. But it's going to be interesting to see how many of them talk about voice and talk about it at the top of their of their remarks. That's one of the things I'm going to be looking at and listening for this weekend when all the Dems come down this way. So, you know, I think it's a, I think that's where we all ought to be paying attention and sort of seeing what they're saying.
1: Uh, Greg, and then roll, but Greg, I want to ask you, I assume you're going to be in Columbus. You're everywhere in the state when there are big political events. Obviously, um, this is a key issue between Jen Jordan. So it'll be interesting to hear what she says in her talk to the convention as she runs for attorney general. Uh, a supporting choice, whereas she's running against incumbent Chris Carr, who's uh, been a leading voice uh, in opposing uh, choice and in supporting the state's restrictive law. Greg,
2: alas, I will be missing a meal with Chuck Williams. I will not be in Columbus. We have a long planned trip with a bunch of friends in Nashville, um, but we will have coverage there. My colleague Shannon McCaffrey will be there. For sure. And, you know, we're, we're, we're running a sort of preview on it right now where it hits right on Chuck's themes, which is <clears throat> abortion rights is going to be at center of the remarks. But at the same time, um, Democrats can't ignore inflation in the economy. And that's why we're hearing Senator Warnock put the new federal climate change and, and health care and tax bill at the center of his messaging. Even Stacey Abrams is, is mentioning it um, as a sort of democratic counter to these inflation concerns. But this morning, Governor Kemp came out with a new ad pounding, hammering Stacey Abrams and Democrats on rising grocery prices, rising gas, uh, higher than usual gas prices, and just higher overall uh, costs. And that's going to be his thing. I'll be surprised if he veers far from that message from here on out.
1: Well, he's certainly not going to run any ads, I think, Raul, it's safe to say, uh, saying how thrilled he is that he signed one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. Raul? You know, but I do want to mention. You mentioned
4: the attorney general's race and Jen Jordan. I was on the I was on the trail um, with the two of them. Um, Jen Jordan was was campaigning in North Fulton. I would say there was a, it was an interesting scene. It was it, it was held at a daycare center that was already closed for the day, held in the backyard. About forty people, there, fifty people. The vast majority were women. Abortion absolutely came up. You know, pretty early on in her stump speech. Uh, especially the idea of, of 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 lawyers having to get involved in in, in a decision uh, such as abortion and in, in medical care. I was also on the trail with Chris Carr, and and his, he was speaking at the festival of India, so much more flowery type speech. Talked to him afterwards, still his big focus was on crime, and and issues around that. But I talked to him about abortion, and 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 he has strong opinions there. Simply saying, look, district attorneys. And and, and and then it, by extension, if Jen Jordan was attorney general, need to enforce the law, you know. And so absolutely, abortion is not just at the top of the ballot. It's, it's further down the ballot, including in the attorney general's race.
1: All right. Raul Bali gets the last word in the second segment of the show. We got to get to our final break. We'll be back with more in a moment. Chuck Williams, I want to take advantage of your presence on the show to talk a little bit about the 2nd District Congressional Race, uh, WRBL. Your station just announced it will be uh, one of the uh, uh, stations that's going to host a debate between the Republican challenger, Chris West, and longtime incumbent, Sanford Bishop. Uh, Chuck, uh, you've watched Sanford Bishop for many years. He's never really come close to losing that seat as a Democrat uh, in an area that has a lot of Republicans but the district's been redrawn, and uh, maybe he's going to have a harder time uh, now. Give us just a quick summary of where you think that race stands and where it's headed.
3: It's going to be tight. There's no question about it. I think uh, Congressman Bishop and his challenger, Chris West, both know that. I went down to Albany yesterday to cover uh, a Herschel Walker event, and Chris West was on the, on the deal with, with Herschel yesterday. But one thing I noticed going down – and Congressman Bishop has long had the support of the agricultural interests in southwest Georgia. I saw more of the, the bigger uh, campaign signs, the wooden ones they put up, in fields and in front of grain silos and in the, pe- the peanut fields of Farmers for West. Chris West is from Thomasville, he, uh, his family has been in agribusiness, and he is really going to try to whittle away that farm support along traditional Republican Democratic lines. And, you know, that's where Jeremy Hunt, who came in as kind of a carpetbagger candidate out of Atlanta and got beat uh, by West in the runoff, was t- was trying to do you know, but West is really going after the farm interests. And I can't wait to dive deeper into that as we get closer to the election. Because if enough of the farmers stick with Bishop, he wins. If the farmers say, hey, you know, and, and it goes to the to the to one of the slogans that West is saying at every stop, it's time to rotate the crop. And he keeps yeah. saying that it's time to rotate the crop. So it's going to be interesting
1: to watch. Uh, Laurie, it's a really clever line, but this has implications obviously for the entire state for a couple reasons. One of which is the second district has been firmly in Democratic hands for decades now, and but with the redistricting, not only was the previously Democratic sixth district or the currently Uh, Democratic 6th District now uh, potentially uh, going over to a Republican, but the second could go to a Republican as well, which really uh, alters the balance uh, even more in the Georgia congressional delegation.
0: And I also think what makes it so interesting is it's probably one of the only competitive races in Congress, you know, that we have. So, I mean, that's why it's on our radar because we've been watching it. Um, Most of the other ones are are decided by redistricting.
1: Yeah, that is fascinating. Um, uh, Greg, weigh in real quickly on that. And, and then I want to move on to talk about a uh, Sandra deal.
2: Yeah, make no mistake, there, this is one of the reasons why the Democratic Convention is going to be in Columbus. It's to show support for Sanford Bishop. And I was struck by a moment. A couple of weeks ago, the, Georgia's, the Georgia Chamber's annual congressional luncheon in Macon. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1,300 people were there, all sorts of elected leaders, Democrats and Republicans. Uh, G- Republican pollster Frank Lentz has given the keynote speech. And as he begins, before he even started his spiel, he makes a beeline towards Sanford Bishop, walks into the crowd, and says, You are one of the most remarkable members of Congress because you can work across party lines. in Sanford Bishop about a standing ovation from both sides. That to me underscored. Uh, how hard it will be for Republicans to to oust him this cycle. But he's been in Congress for 30 years. Uh, There's no telling when he might retire. But uh, even if Chris West loses, I don't think he's going to leave the political spotlight anytime soon.
1: Okay, um, thank you for that. Um, I'll tell you what, I'm going to exercise the host's uh, prerogative here and put off until tomorrow the conversation about latest news in the Herschel Walker-Raphael Warnock- Race, because I really do think it's important to give some time to talking about uh, the loss of Sandra Deal. So I hope all of you out there listening will uh, come back tomorrow to hear more about Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. But, um, Laurie Geary, let me start with you. Um, Sandra Deal, a a veteran teacher, uh, devoted her whole life to education. And uh, she died at age 80. Uh, she had breast cancer, which metastasized, uh, became brain cancer. Um, she was as close to Nathan Deal as a spouse could possibly be. And, and I think one of the remarkable things about her um, is, is that when she became first lady, um, she told people that she had no intention of sitting around the mansion and I think the quote was drinking sweet tea. I am going to be out there uh, meeting with the people of Georgia, and especially going to schools across the state. With all that said, give us some thoughts and your reflections about uh, Sandra Deal, and I'll ask all the others to do the same.
0: Oh, this one hurts. It's really, really sad. She was one of a kind for sure. Always, Bill, always had a smile on her face, and you know she stood firm to that commitment and traveled 159 counties in those eight years and read to all those elementary school students who probably will never forget that visit, but they will always have that in their heart. And that's one of the legacies that she leaves behind. And I think also there were just so many funny stories with her. She had such a great sense of humor. Um, Her staff would always talk about, you know, how she hosted all of her church lady friends at the mansion and I remember one of the stories that I did when I was working at Channel 2 and I was, you know, the political reporter. I covered move-in day at the mansion for the deals. And it just, it just showed how simple they were. They opened up that moving truck, and it was two recliners and photo albums. <laughs> but, and that, that was them. And the one thing that really, though, my heart goes out to Governor Deal because the love that they had for each other – Um, The way they looked at each other during even press conferences or after press conferences, there was a true love that, you know, we all hope we have with our own spouses.
1: You know, uh, Raul, our friend Brian Robinson, the Republican consultant, who, of course, was deputy uh, chief of staff for uh, uh, Governor Deal during his first term, uh, made a comment, I thought, in the AJC that was interesting. He said um, Nathan Deal was the introvert. Nathan Deal could walk into a campaign event, take his lunch from the buffet, and sit down by himself while everybody else was all around him. And and it was his wife who said, Nathan, <laughs> they're here to meet you. You've got to get up and uh, mingle. And I just thought that was an interesting dynamic, Raul. It, it is an interesting
4: dynamic. And and first, my thoughts for the Deal family and for everyone who worked for him, like Brian, you know, you're seeing all the the wonderful tributes to to First Lady Deal. Um, you know, the last time I saw the couple was at the Georgia Supreme Court, and they were both standing right next to each other. She sat, sat through uh, Governor Deal's lecture um, uh, at the Georgia Supreme Court. And let me leave you uh, one quick story. You know, um, on my exit interview with with Governor Deal back in 2018, when, when he was... Yeah, 2018, when he was... I should remember this... Um, it was, a random question came up where I asked him, Hey, what's something you want to do when you leave the governor's office? He goes, I want to drive again. Governor Deal said that. But then the <laughs> next thing he said was, The next thing he said was, Me and Sandra have picked out cars that he's going to drive a Honda Ridgeline and she was going to drive a Honda CRV. I, I feel bad I never followed up whether that was the two cars they ended up getting, but. Like, even the discussion about what kind of car you're going to drive after you leave office, they had cars together picked out.
1: (laughs) Uh, Chuck and then Greg.
3: You know, Bill, we had a different view of them. The Springer Opera House here is one of our great treasures. It's the State Theater of Georgia. And uh, the deal's daughter, Katie, is an outstanding actress. Many of you all know that. She would be an equity actor who would come down from Atlanta and star and and perform – on the Springer stage, most notably, she was Patsy Cline, and remembering Patsy, and uh, that was, <laughs> she was out, she was outstanding. But her parents would come down to Columbus. They could have had the best seat in Springer Opera House, and it's a beautiful, beautiful place. They chose to sit with everybody else, and they would sit there, and they were Katie's mom and dad, not the governor and the first lady. And that's how I will remember them sitting in the spring are uh, right.
1: John, as a father of a daughter in the theater i relate to that story greg we've got just a couple minutes for you to uh give your thoughts
2: yeah we wrote a lot of uh, tough stories about governor deal over our time over his time in office but invariably sandra deal whenever she saw me it would come up give a gracious a greeting you know always have time always always just act with kindness and respect and especially when I would drag my kids on the campaign trail, she would make sure they were well thought after. One of my favorite pictures is a picture of her greeting my, my baby daughter eight years ago on the campaign trail.
1: We will miss uh, Sandra Deal. Uh, there are a lot of times politics turns very, very toxic, as all of you know. But Sandra Deal was one of the bright lights in Georgia politics. Uh, we're out of time for today, but I have to tell you, I just once again— I sit here feeling so fortunate that I get to listen to the panelists that we had today talking about the news uh, in Georgia. So Chuck Williams, Raul Bali, Lori Geary, Greg Bousteen, thank you for a wonderful conversation. We're out of time for today. Subscribe to the newsletter at gpb.org slash newsletters. We'll be back with a panel tomorrow. We'll talk about Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock and a lot more. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay Bye-bye, everybody.